Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. I'm Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. John and Peter are the authors of Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. We're excited today to be joined by Parker Palmer, a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's the founder and senior partner of Center for Courage and Renewal. Parker said to us recently that aging as an asset has a lot to do with community development, uh, and we'll be hearing more about that. I had to tease him about Feel, trying to feel comfortable with my wrinkles. <laughs> so af, after they've talked for a while, we'll, we'll open up the call. And there are two ways that you can join. If you've dialed in, press star eight on your phone to be put into a queue. And if you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. Uh, we want to hear your thoughts and reflections. And Leslie Steven, our website manager, is supporting us. Um, I, and I've understood that there may be problems with people hearing us on the chat, so I suggested they uh, sign back in or even use the telephone to dial in. Uh, so now I'll turn this over to Peter to begin the conversation. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, John. And Parker, thank you so much for uh, including us in your circle of trust. So thank you for being here. Oh, delighted to be with two old friends. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, the, the statement Maggie quoted about aging and community development, I thought, that's an interesting, putting those together. Could you start by uh, saying a little more about what that evokes in your mind, the fact that uh, elder aging and community development somehow seem to need each other? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm 78, as I believe you are, Peter and John is a, a little bit our senior, but not much. Um, and um, I'm very aware um, of the number of older folk around me, people in my age cohort, who who really feel unseen, unheard, ignored, uh, and yet who who still have so very much to offer. Um, <clears throat> I, I personally don't feel that way because I've been fortunate over the years to create a work life that um, that, that uh, I can, is sort of self-determined, and I can keep writing and speaking as long as I'm able to do so. But these these elders who who are who become invisible in the community, they they have such great experience to bring to so many things. They've been around the block more than a few times. And when I think about the role of the elders historically in, in many countries, I'm thinking, for example, of Latin American countries like Chile and Argentina, where it was really the grandmothers who called those, uh, those totalitarian societies back to some form of accountability and um, always a work in progress, some form of, of, of a little bit more democracy. And of course, in in many uh, parts of this country now, um, uh, not only areas where people have few material resources, but other areas as well. It's the grandparents who are caring for the young children as that middle generation of of parents finds themselves working a couple of jobs um, <clears throat> or otherwise unable to care for their own kids. So I think we have a huge asset here that is is yet to be tapped and has a lot to do with how uh, 
in this uh, American culture of ours, which is both glorious and screwed up at the same time, <laughs> um, we we somehow have this notion that we have to have to stay young, um, which is kind of sort of against the laws of nature. <laughs> I, I think whenever you whenever you try to swim against Mother Nature, you're in you're in you're in big trouble. So that's at least a starting point for some of those thoughts. How would you invite, uh, what would the invitation sound like? Suppose we decided that we wanted to engage the less engaged elders. How would you construct, what are the kind of spaces or thinking or invitation you would do to, to initiate something like that? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the is the public schools where there's so much need for older adults to simply sit with with children uh, very often these days teachers have too many kids in their classes in order to uh, pay attention to each of them so this need for older people to sit with students and do simple things like work on basic math problems or issues with reading or simply read to to younger kids to provide that kind of grand parently presence that i think is so reassuring to to younger children I also think there's a great need among the the uh, rising generation of let's say 18 to 30 year olds um, for conversations about vocation, about what, what am I called to in my life. Um, it's a very confusing world that that people of that age are moving into. I think it's a good deal more confusing than my world was when I was their age. And here we have elders who've negotiated some of that kind of thing. And with with proper, I think, training, I think all of this requires training, of course, and vetting to make sure that people are doing this for the right reasons and have the capacity to do it. But with tra- proper training in how to be a mentor rather than someone who sees his or her role as telling a young person what to do, but mm-hmm. how to be a, a, a someone who evokes um, the dreams and aspirations and hopes of, of younger people and help, and knows how to help them sort things out, um, it, it, uh, that's an enormously valuable role in a world like ours. I think all of us, Peter, John, and, and I, we share um, a, an interest in, in faith communities, both uh, traditionally and non-traditionally defined uh, people who gather around deep questions of meaning and purpose as informed by various traditions, uh, some of them emerging traditions. And I, I've often wondered why our faith communities are not doing more to host these kinds of, for example, intergenerational relationships. The, the churches, as I understand the demographics of church life these days, this tends to be an aging population. There, there aren't a lot of millennials actively <clears throat> joining the churches. And so why not bring some new life to the church by um, uh, by inviting elders to play these creative roles? And, and of course, what, what we all know, and, uh, and I'm sure the folks who are listening to us at this moment know, is that when you when you reach out to another person that way with a gift of presence, a gift of of self, you get back often more than you give. Mm-hmm. And and so for many elders, relationships with school kids around simple things like reading and basic math, or relationships with millennials around things like vocational discernment and decision making, this this gives the elders uh, a, a sense of of having a valuable role in the community, which which many of them uh, start missing either on retirement or when they become empty nesters or the loss of a spouse. Uh, something happens in one's older years that deprives one of, of of meaning and activities of the sort that I'm that we're exploring here, which uh, are are are, are meaning making activities. You uh, mentioned training, and you said uh, before we came on that your center is focusing on leadership and activists from 25 to 40. If you were training uh, people later on, what's the key?
key kind of training you would give people as they move into a school or move into younger people or a vocational conversation? What's your, give us two or three elements that you think it's important people are trained or conscious of as they cross generations. Well, let me, um, let me focus on that, uh, uh, that 18 to 30-year-old group. Um, I think the schools, uh, certainly the schools in my area, have some very fine programs for teaching older people to be tutors and simple companions to grade school children in some of these ways. But I'm I'm not so aware of programs that prepare people to to sit with someone who's let's say 22 or 23, 24, and who's who's searching for direction in a confusing world. So I think the first thing that that I would do is to work very hard on um, helping people develop a capacity to listen. Um, this is this is something that we do in in our what we call our circles of trust through the Center for Courage and Renewal, which has now been up and running in one form or another for 25 years. And we've got 300 facilitators around the globe, really, most of them here in the U.S. or Canada, but a number in other regions as well. And, and one of the first things we do in, in these circles is to try to to help each other that we're, to understand we're not here to make speeches to each other. Um, we're, we're here to listen deeply to each other, to do something that a wonderful feminist theologian called Nell Morton once named as hearing each other into speech. I, I really love that phrase, that, that you know, everyone, everyone has something to say behind, behind what they're saying where they have a question behind their question. And we can serve each other so powerfully well by hearing each other into speech. The way we do that is pretty simple. When our circles gather, we say rule number one is there shall be no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. (laughs) (laughs) Let me repeat, repeat that list. No fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. And, Usually when we announce that, and and we're talking here about 25 people who are going to experience, let's say, five or six retreats with each other of three days each over a year and a half, somebody says, well, what in heaven's name are we going to do for the next year and a half? You've just taken away everything we know how to do and and, and like to do. But, of course, what we've taken away are precisely those behaviors that tend to to end conversations quickly and to drive us back into hiding, as it were. So (laughs) if I sit down with a 22-year-old person and I listen for five minutes, or if I've been to a listening workshop in the last two months, I listen for eight minutes, um, and, and I start telling them what I think they ought to do with their life, given the very few initial surface clues they've given me, that's that effectively ends the conversation but right. if i if i know how to to listen and then secondly to ask honest open questions which turns out to be uh, a high art really because most of us are trained to ask questions that are really little speeches in disguise or or little advices in disguise so when i teach people the the protocols for asking honest open questions i'll often say have you thought about seeing a therapist is not an honest open question <laughs> uh, right. uh, it, it, you you might as well fess up and say i think you ought to see a therapist but that's not your job that's not what we're there for you're here you're present to hear that other person into speech and if you can ask a question like the experience you just told me about that's so difficult for you at the moment have you ever had an, a similar experience in your life? And if the person says yes, well, can you tell me a little bit about it? Right. And if they do that, and then to ask, was there anything you learned during that experience that might be helpful to you now? That's an example of hearing a person into deeper and deeper speech where they, they start to discover that, as we Quakers like to say, everyone has an inner teacher everyone has a kind of inner source of guidance mm. 
but it, it but it often needs the encouragement and the evocation of another person or group of people uh, in order to um, be heard and uh, in order to be followed. Let me uh, one more question, then John, I'll turn it over to you. You you've written about and talked about uh, periods in your life, Parker, where it's been a struggle for you. Yes. And and. Uh, one of the things I read or heard that touched me, you said everybody who comes to you in those periods always has something in mind. And the only time anybody did anything that was truly helpful was when they rubbed your feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I mean, that just, uh, that was so touching to me. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's related to what you what you started with, about what is really healing. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you <clears throat> picking up that that reference, Peter. So I've written about the fact and spoken often about the fact that I've had three deep dives into clinical depression in the course of my adult life, the most recent one being when I was 65 years old, so about 13 years ago. And <clears throat> it's, it's it's a lot of people, of course, in this society suffer from depression or, or live with someone who does. So you know, I'm. We're all interested in how do we make meaning out of the tough experiences of our lives, and one of one of my ways of making meaning is to try to understand those experiences well enough to put them at the service of other people, or at very least to sort of stand in solidarity with fellow sufferers. So, uh, in, it, one of the most frequent things that happens when you're depressed is that people come by and tell you you shouldn't be depressed. <laughs> which, uh, which, which, yeah. believe, believe me, really isn't helpful. <laughs> uh, um, they'll and they'll say things that actually leave you more depressed. They'll they'll say, for example, but Parker, you're you're such a wonderful guy. You're writing and you're speaking. Have helped so many people, and you've counseled with so many people. And when they say that, it it. it the impact is now I've defrauded another person. (laughs) If they knew what a horrible person I was, which is how you feel when you're depressed, um, they would, they, they'd walk out of the room. They, they wouldn't ever want to talk with me again. So there's this sense of fraudulence that is very depressing. Or when someone says you should really get out of your room where you have the shades pulled because you, you need the safety and you should get outside and, you know, feel the sun and, and look at the flowers and hear the birds because that's all, that's all uplifting. You get more depressed because you know intellectually that it's supposed to be uplifting, but you can't feel an atom of that uplift or that encouragement in your body because your emotions are dead. So, as I've written, the one one person who who just in some ways saved my life during my first depression was a friend, a dear friend, a man I trusted who was a few years older than I. He asked my permission to do this, and every afternoon he came by like clockwork at about four, at four o'clock. He would always let me know if if the day came when he couldn't make it that day because he knew that. I was kind of counting on it, and he just had me sit in a chair in my living room and took off my shoes and socks and massaged my feet for maybe 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it was, um, you know, it, it does remind folks, it certainly reminded me of, of the foot washing scenes in, in Scripture and in Christian tradition and in other traditions, too. Um, but it 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 provided me with it, it. He somehow amazingly found the only place in my body where I could feel connected to another human being. And he, he never, he hardly ever spoke. He was a very intuitive person. Occasionally he would say something like, I feel your struggle today. No more than that. On other days he might say, I feel you getting a little stronger he wouldn't invite a conversation. He would just make these simple observations occasionally. Uh-huh. And um, what he gave me was one of the most precious gifts you can give a person who's depressed. And it's actually a twofold gift. One is a sense of connection 
with another human being, which you're utterly lacking in clinical depression, and that's terrifying in and of itself. And the second gift that's implicit in that is you've finally found someone who's not scared of your depression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the people who came by with, <clears throat> who came around with what I call drive-by advice, you know, to lob it and leave, were really people who I, I could tell intuitively were, were looking at my depression as, as a contagious disease. And if they stayed too long, they might catch it themselves. It was depressing to them to see me depressed, and so they were afraid of me. And you're super sensitive to that when you when you're depressed, and when they drop their advice on you and then and then run, you you really are left in uh, deeper darkness than you had before. But this man stayed with me. He was faithful to me for. For months, and uh, as I say, I really credit him with with help see uh, help, help me helping me see it through. Yeah, I think that that thank thank you so much, Parker. It's because it's it's true not just for uh, clinical depression, but it's true for the tragic nature of life and, yeah. and uh, those hills and valleys that we all that just being human. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So and when I when I read you know when I read your your title of the latest book about the abundant community, I instantly think of this abundance that we all have if if we're not afraid of each other, which is the abundance of simple presence to another human being. John, is there something you'd like to address? Well, like to I was taken by the the title here, uh, aging. Uh, as an asset, and I was uh, thinking about uh, at at 85 whether or not the people in my age range <laughs> had something that was an asset. Um, one thing that occurs to me uh, is that that uh, through generations, the uh, the world outside tends to change. And so uh, if you are a person who has uh, experience and some knowledge or even something called wisdom that you gained, let's say, in the, from 1930 to, to the year 2000, and then you looked at the year 2017, you might say in some measure that what, what you know may not be awfully useful for the changed world uh, that that you see and in in that sense let me let me suggest that uh, at the current time older people in general have had an experience that I think is an asset but I'd like uh, both your thoughts on how it might be made utilitarian, and that is I think that uh, people who lived through, I would say, the last half of the last century tend to have had more sense of mutuality and collective life than the people uh, who are here currently. Uh, A lot of reasons to uh, explain that and a lot of research that, that identifies it. But uh, if you went to 1950 on a block in a city, you were likely to find uh, some pretty uh, useful and supportive uh, connections that were there among the people there. Uh, I say that having organized on those blocks back then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Today, mostly, you would go to a block and people would say, well, I don't really know my neighbors. I know two people next door. Also, in terms of collective experience, uh, we didn't have the kind of separation of income because there was a collective sense in the workplace that we called unions. Mm -hmm. So where we lived and where we worked, we had a set of mutual support relationships that I think have pretty well diminished. 
Mm-hmm. Now the question is, is is that experience um, an asset today? And if it is, how might it be manifested? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a fascinating question, John, and, and I'm I, I'm delighted for a chance to wrestle with it with both you and Peter. Um, you know, I, I, I this is where the intergenerational dialogue comes back to me big time, mm-hmm. be, because for me, the, 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 the dialogue that is evoked by the question you just asked is one in which I, and I think I can give a concrete example in just a moment, but I, I speak with young activists about how it was when, when I was in my 20s mm-hmm. and, and along some of the lines that you just named. And, and they say to me, yes, but today the conditions are very, very different. And I, I think they're right um, in, in that. That is, for example, growing up in the 50s in Wilmette, Illinois, not, not far from where you live in Chicago, Mm-hmm. I never met an African American. Yes. Uh, I didn't even meet I didn't even meet Jews who lived in Glencoe. They were segregated out from places like Wilmette. Although accidentally, by happy accident, my best friend in high school was Jewish, and so I spent a lot of a lot of time in Glencoe. But there was this homogeneity of the community in which I grew up, which made that some of that mutuality a little easier, although there was the intervening factor of affluence, mm-hmm. which cons people into believing that that they're independent, not interdependent. Yeah. interdependent. Mm-hmm. Um, and and labor unions um, have managed over the years, you know, not only to be squashed by the powers that be, mm-hmm. but in some cases to have discredited themselves from within. Right. So so that even the workers uh, got sick and tired. Of the bosses, um, you know, having 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 joined the bourgeoisie, so um, uh, the conversation that I have in mind, and again, I'll, I'll give you a specific example in a moment, is, is one about okay, we we want we want some of that, we want to get that kind of communalism back, we want to get that interdependence back, mm-hmm. but the conditions are different. Right. So how do how do I hold my vision of possibility, which I've seen with my own eyes, together with the young person's um, struggle with a very different set of conditions, and how do we work together on the kind of social processes that might that might create the interdependent community that's possible today, rather than simply me sitting back as an old man and romanticizing the the the, the community of 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 yore right. um uh, here's a here's the example i have in mind that i've actually been working on in our in our work with young leaders and activists through the center for courage and renewal i spent most of the 1960s in berkeley doing a phd and of course yeah. Um, being introduced to social movements and some some great transformative events of human history, in, in U.S. history, and in fact, it was the events of the '60s that sort of kick, kicked me out of academia as a vocation. I mean, I finished my Ph.D., but by the end of the '60s, my heroes had been assassinated, the cities were burning, there was a yeah. horrific war raging, and that's when I became a community organizer for the next five years in Washington, D.C., feeling feeling that I wanted to use my sociology on the streets, that it would be put to better use there than, than in, in academia. So uh, today, um, so, uh, so I've always been interested in social movements. And, <clears throat> and today... I, I tune in, as I did several years ago, to the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. which, uh, of which I'm an absolute devotee. And um, I see this T-shirt that some activists are wearing that says, this ain't your mama's civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I realize, oh, I've got, I've got some learning to do around 
how movements today are taking a different form than they did in the in the in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, w- one of my most powerful experiences in recent years was in two thousand eleven, going on the annual civil rights pilgrimage, w- led by Representative John Lewis, which yeah. was this three day uh, jaunt through or trek through um, Birmingham, Montgomery, and then to Selma, where on the 46th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, John Lewis led a bunch of us across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, just as he had originally at age at age 24. And it was very moving. I learned a lot from that. I, I, I was reminded of a lot that that's, was important then and is still important today. But I was also reminded of the fact that at that time, television was relatively new and we were not nearly as inured to violence on tv as we are today and so america was watching and america was scandalized by the brutality of bloody sunday and within a few months of that march across the edmund pettus bridge congress had passed the 1965 civil rights act I don't think that would happen today just by putting it on TV. I mean, everything's on TV, yeah. and not not much happens out of it, right? Because it's well, what do you what do you feel is today's movement, and uh, and and connect that with what's happening nationally, and and how you think about the national scene too? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think that's a work in progress for me, and it's one of the reasons I'm having these dialogues with young leaders and activists um, who, who, for example, aren't all the, as concerned as I am about the collapse of some of the traditional forms of organized religion because they're inventing new forms of organized religion. Um, and they don't, they don't have the sense of, of grief that my generation does about how some of the institutions we once relied on um, are no longer functioning very well because they're inventing new institutions. And, you know, part of part of what's fueling their different way of thinking about all this um, is, the, is social media. Um, we were joking with each other early that for, for guys who are in the last quarter of life, we're, we don't do too badly at social media, but... Um, we we don't do nearly as well. I think we're we're not as agile and and not mm-hmm. as effective as some of the millennials are, as as they set about to organize for the things they care about in in ways that um, that make a difference, but that people of my generation don't don't know much about. So I, I think you know. No, I'll say this, um, as I talk to them not only about the Black Lives Matter movement, but about the larger social movement that that when Obama was still in office got this country to to say okay to same-sex marriage, sort of, you know, across the board, mm-hmm. I started learning about, I started realizing it had been a long time since I saw LGBTQ folks sort of on the street dominating the TV news with that form of social movement. And I started learning that a lot of their actions had been state by state in the courts um, and within, you know, corporations to to kind of make incremental gains, which finally reached a tipping point um, mm-hmm. and, and, and resulted in uh, a kind of across the board um, possibility for same-sex marriages in places that you would never have thought it, it would happen, and and so when the current administration came to power, my first thought that that very night, the night of November eighth, was not about the Democratic Party. It was about the ACLU. Um, I, I thought. Okay, this is a this is a point at which one one would hope that the legal institutions that are so critical to a democracy would hold, and it, it, just just as they had advanced the LGBTQ movement over the 
preceding couple of decades, which operated kind of behind the scenes. Well, it wasn't long before the ACLU, it was two ACLU lawyers who got a restraining order slapped on the first um, Muslim ban, and yeah. I mean, let's call it what it is, um, on, in, on immigration. And they've been very effective, I think, ever since in holding back the tide. So, um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I don't think anybody has figured this thing out yet. What is the new form right. of, a, of a social movement? But I, 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 I don't think it's the street actions that, uh, that I came, I, I cut my eye teeth on and, and that helped advance things in Berkeley and in Selma and against the war in Vietnam. I don't. I don't think that's the way to go anymore. I mean, it is impressive when hundreds of thousands, millions of women, for example, show up on the streets around the globe. But if you if you start connecting the dots and and asking, okay, what what does that do beyond saying to us that a lot of people care about this and that that has value in itself? I don't think it does as much as. Um, what, as much as what happened when the American public in 1965 saw nonviolent young people being bloodied and beaten right. by officers of the state. So I'm holding a lot of questions about this. Those are yeah. some of them. Thank you. Let me stop a second. See if people have one. Uh, thank you so much, Parker. Why don't you put out a call for, for people calling in, Maggie? Sure, uh, and we do have one caller already, but I'd like to invite you all to uh, join the conversation. Uh, you, if you dialed in, you can press star eight on your telephone and you'll be put into a queue. We also have some questions in the chat, Peter. I don't know if you can see those, but um, at the moment, I'm going to go ahead and invite um, a caller from East Iowa. Hello, are you there? Caller from Iowa? Okay, I, I guess we might have lost that caller. Well, so, any the, uh, there's a question on the chat when you say it's not Paramama's uh, civil rights movement. Uh, the question is, does this deny history? And disrespect it, you know. I and I, the the struggle when we talk about you know the 50s or 60s is that uh, it can be felt as a as a kind of nostalgia. So, whereas I think what you're saying, Parker, there's a moving forwardness that's not clear to us now. And uh, any thoughts you have about history and memory and and. Uh, what's new and fresh and just in whatever that triggers in you Parker yeah you know i i i don't um, i don't believe in history denial even any more than i believe in science denial um mm. it, you know i i don't i try very hard not to deny reality actually um, <laughs> as often as possible I remember there was a great exchange between a transcendentalist named Margaret Fuller back in the 19th century and yeah. uh, right and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Margaret Fuller said I accept the universe and Ralph Waldo Emerson said by God she'd better <laughs> uh, and I, that made an impression on me you know so I. I I don't think it's historical denial, but I think it's an acknowledgement that you never step into the same stream twice, and that the the, the factors that go into any historical mix are a, a very complex and and constantly changing uh, body of variables, and you you have to you have to adjust accordingly uh, as 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 those variables ring their changes. So there's a, I think there's a lot to learn from the 60s. Um, uh, one thing, and some of it is negative lessons. This is another thing I deal with with some of my younger colleagues is that uh, 
you know, back in the back in the '60s, um, there were a lot of people, at least in Berkeley, that I knew who were convinced that we were going to change the world by the end of the decade. And when we didn't, um, they threw in the towel and went to work for Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, so, some of us, some of us didn't. But, but today's today's young activists are, are, I think, better represented by a book written by a friend of mine, a young a woman, 35 or so, named Courtney Martin, who wrote a very fine book called Do It Anyway about the younger generation of activists. And her basic thesis is they understand they're not going to change the world overnight or even real soon, but they do believe in incremental change, and they believe in the absolute importance of witnessing to their own values in an active way. So they do it anyway. Well, that's that's a generational shift from where we were in the 60s, um, full of a kind of, I think, false optimism about how how efficacious we were going to be, and and then giving up when when we weren't. Um, that's the danger of false optimism: is you throw in well, the towel and it doesn't work out. It's also the danger of of having to see results. Yeah, you know, as a driver of your energy, and uh, I've always felt luckily that I've never been burdened by the need to see outcomes from my efforts. <laughs> That's, that, that is good luck, man. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, Parker, something that uh, may be abiding across uh, uh, our life experience with movements is that uh, it seems to me they have uh, two kinds of outcomes, at least. One uh, is uh, legislative change, whether it's the civil rights or the women's or the environmental or the LGBT revolutions and movements, right? All of those get manifested in enough popular change that it shows up legislatively. But the other thing, and we're more conscious of it, I think, in the movements of the 60s, is they also change culture mm-hmm. underneath. And so I I think that maybe we're in a time when the culture is changing underneath, but the manifestations of a movement are not yet very visible. Mm-hmm. And then, think, and yeah. then something uh, will will emerge in in the oh, if you want to have the legislative or rulemaking world. Yeah, I, I I think that's I think that's possible. It may even be the, that we're in the, in a process of reconstituting the institutions of democracy, in, potentially in a good way, um, to make them more robust as we become more aware of the fragility. Of, yeah. of the system we have, um, yeah. So I, I think you know, I, I think that one of the one of the good things that's going on right now, and I'm I'm certainly not the first person to point to this. A lot of people have, is that you know what's been happening with the new administration is that a lot of us have been forced to take off our blinders or our rose-colored glasses about the fundamental nature of this society we've we've been forced to think back on on our founders who were geniuses when it when it came to the creation of a, of a of an absolutely remarkable system of government which is, as i like to say is the first system i know anything about that treats um conflict uh, not as the enemy as a good social order, but as the engine of a better social order. So so we need to learn to value conflict. But they were also bigots, and and they had blinders on when it came to Native Americans. I mean, they sponsored genocide and to women and to enslaved human beings and to people who didn't own property. We, the people, had a very, very narrow meaning in the minds of the founders. But the genius is that they gave us this system which has allowed us over the years to correct their errors, you know, to, to basically say to our founders, you got it wrong. We the people is is a much larger 
collection of folks than you ever imagined or maybe would have approved of. So with the blinders off, with the rose-colored glasses off, you know, we, about American culture, the very thing you're talking about, John, we, we have a chance to, to, to work away at cultural change at sort of the DNA level, the genetic level. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if you if you think of DNA, put quotes around DNA, national DNA, our cultural DNA, which has been holding us back and dragging us down for a very long time, and it's really hard to deny any longer that we have these same strains of pathology in the body politic that the that the founders planted there. Let me, uh, if I could, Maggie, do we still have a couple of callers on? Yes, we do. How about inviting them to hear their voices? All right. Okay, so we have a caller from California. Yeah, this is this crazy old Richard Lewis, 80 years young. <laughs> I came to Santa well, Cruz and I missed you. you, uh, you... My question to the three of you, because I'll follow up, I'm at the table of 113 of the community colleges of the 1,000 in the country, and it's really hard to get other people to see what I think all three of you hold, that we need to listen to their future. And while I talk a lot, I've got 3,400 almost on my LinkedIn, I really would love to see what it might look like to bring that voice to this particular uh, structure, guys, it's a 503C, just with a, a letter of understanding to the trustees. And certainly, um, you know, I try to let people know that that generation to generation is there. You can have a master's degree and go to a California community college and then be, be involved in student government. So I'm going to stop and, and follow up, um, you know, being on the call uh, what your own insights are as to uh, starting that cornerstone, not limiting it to that particular student structure out here in California. We are pretty progressive. Remember, John, Santa Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was in Santa Cruz when Paige Smith was there, so I do remember, and I'm sure we all we all do. Well, without knowing, you know, a lot more detail about your particular situation, I don't know that I can speak directly to it. But let me let me say this. I recently had an experience with an organization called Ashoka, which some of you m- may be aware of. It's a very interesting international organization sponsoring young social entrepreneurs who are doing a remarkable range of good things in the world. And they have um, a sub set of that organization that's called Ashoka U, Ashoka University, as it were. And they have, you can find them online, they have put together an assembly of what they call changemaker campuses, which are across the country and around the world. They started a couple of years ago, and I think they're up to 50 or 60 now, changemaker campuses, which have basically taken a pledge to get students engaged in 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 thinking and speaking and listening and being listened to the way we're talked about we're talking about here uh, around around serious issues of social transformation um, I spoke to about 800 of them down in Miami and was enormously impressed with with the, 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 with a spirit there that again I identify as very much of the 21st century, not the same kind of spirit that animated the 60s in Berkeley. It seemed to me more knowing. It seemed to me wiser. It seemed to me more grounded and less prone to flights of fancy and therefore more promising about getting some traction in in the real world. So for whatever it's worth, I would point folks who are interested in higher education to Ashoka U and their Changemaker Campus program. We have that uh, uh, link on the on the website on the uh, on the chat room, just in case people are interested. So thank you for that. Great. You know, I also think that that Ashoka and the, the movement now is also an entrepreneurial 
dimension to it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's treating the marketplace as yes. the platform or venue for transformation. Absolutely. Now, are you against commerce, but producing commerce? Is there another color on the line, Maggie? I want to get to that because we're. Yes, we do. We have two callers on the line. We also have a a question that was posted early on and then repeated that I I think I'd like to um, address also, which is... Let's get the callers, though. Do the callers, okay. Yeah. All right, so I'm inviting our second California. Yeah, am I talking? Hello, Peter. Yeah. Am I online yet? Yes. Okay. First of all, I am absolutely enchanted by this conversation. Uh, I think the the premise uh, to hear people into speech is one of the most uh, beautiful statements I've heard in a long time, and I want to just sort of savor it. Uh, I have a driver who is Egyptian and is a... Uh, 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 a lawyer, and he left Egypt. He's a Coptic Christian, and two of their churches were just bombed by ISIS uh, yesterday, and it is a horrible tragedy uh, in Egypt right now. In his church, he took, well, he took his children to San Francisco just to show them uh, that it's great to be a Coptic Christian, and they just killed like 40 people, injured 100 people in two churches on Palm Spring uh, uh, Sunday. And so my my issue is, in some ways, I'm reminded of the Hegelian dialectic, how you slowly, by having a conflict, transform the culture, transform a society. What are your words of wisdom today about the real conflict with ISIS that's going on between, the, uh, you know, the Secretary of State is now in, in Moscow discussing the bombing in the, uh, in, the, in Syria and all of that. Uh, the big, big disagreement, if you can call it that way, is the ISIS crisis today. Is just, uh, just, uh, just discombobulating the whole world. What are some of your insights uh, about uh, that enormous political situation? Thank you, Peter. Yeah, well, just a couple of things about what's obviously a huge issue in our world and one that has dimensions that are beyond my comprehension or my knowledge base. Um, The first thing I I would say is that I think it's very, very important to reject alternative facts and stick with real facts (laughs) when it comes to this debate over um, what what, uh, our president wants uh, wants to call uh, radical Islamic terrorism. You know, if you look at the statistics, I'm actually more scared of white guys, heavily armed white guys with ball caps who live up in the hills of this country or in the backwoods, um, many of whom are Christian, um, than I am of some folks who, who claim an affiliation with the Muslim tradition for which I have enormous respect and and in which many of my friends stand, um, who claim that affiliation but are in fact using it as political cover. So you can go to the Southern Poverty Law Center and you can get right on their website some very sound statistics about who is actually causing the violence in this country, which which is not for a moment to minimize or uh, overlook the violence abroad, which the caller mentioned and which is indeed horrific and grievous. Um, But what is it that we ought to be scared of? Um, I'm frankly more scared of people in the White House right now uh, and their impact on my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, than I am of some of the folks they want me to be scared of, which is why I've joined an organization here called uh, uh, Open Houses for Refugees and, uh, and work, work of that sort, Open Doors for Refugees. The second thing I'd say is that it, with regard to 
violence generally, there's a there's a, a single line that came to me at one point as I was writing, I guess, Healing the Heart of Democracy, that I keep thinking about, and I don't mean that it's that it's you know the the formula that illumines everything. I just mean that I think it's worth meditating on. And that is that violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. Violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. Um, you know, I think for for millennia now, the, the wisdom, the great wisdom traditions and religious traditions have been uh, trying to address this problem. What what how else can we hold our suffering than turning to violence? And there are many answers in the course of human history, and there are many things that we can do for ourselves and and for each other that help alleviate suffering in a way or support people in their suffering in a way that turns them from violence. I mean, when let me go, let me be very personal about this. I told the story earlier of the man who rubbed my feet during my first profound clinical depression. Every other day during that depression, I was thinking about violence, violence aimed at myself. Uh, it's called suicide. And uh, as I wrote about in, in a book called Let Your Life Speak, people go around saying, I don't understand why so-and-so committed suicide. Well, I understand it perfectly. They did it because they needed the rest. Um, depression is an exhausting experience and you can see no way out it's not like being lost in the dark it's like becoming the dark and so your sense of self is annihilated why not finish the job I understand that perfectly what I don't understand what we all ought to be baffled about is how do some people find their way through in a way that allows them not only to survive but eventually to thrive if if we knew the answer to that, we could actually do something useful to help more people not turn their suffering into violence directed at themselves or at others. So the first movement of the heart around violence ought to be empathy for those who turn to violence and the question, why? Um, there There are, of course, people... Who, who simply turn to violence, and I'm not trying to excuse them. I'm, I'm not trying to get them off the hook. Um, what I'm, what I'm asking for is, in a wide range of cases, that we ask the question behind the question, and that we work on a on a society which begins at home and it begins in our neighborhoods and in our local communities, where People have enough sense of being of having their suffering understood and yeah. cared about and and act, and acted upon in a positive manner that they don't have to resort to violence because they don't know what else to do with their suffering. That's beautiful, Parker. I, I'm so uh, grateful for what you just said. You know, I, I remember when uh, Robin Williams died. I heard that you said. He needed a rest, and I thought that was a beautiful, uh, beautiful statement. Mm. I also uh, heard that uh, you know Leonard Cohen passed away right after the election, and uh, uh, an actress said he got out just in time. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful way to think about what else to do about ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Fortunately. Fortunately, before he checked out, uh, Leonard said democracy is coming to the USA, and it's still possible that it will. <laughs> yeah. So, I does anybody on the phone? Because we're nearing the end of our hour here, Maggie. I... We we have one more caller. How about if we just take the call without commenting on it, just to uh, thank them for saying something? Okay. Okay, sure. Hello, caller from Ohio. Hi, my name is Barbara Dragal, and I'm a Jewish educator in Cincinnati. And um, my favorite education book is The Courage to Teach. 
And back to the focus of the conversation around how to facilitate and play a role in uh, creating opportunities for intergenerational dialogue. As um, someone who works in a synagogue setting, it's absolutely one of our goals and purposes and, and where we find meaning as a community. And one of the things I've been reflecting on in this conversation is, uh, Parker, I think in your book you refer to the sacred thing at the center that brings teachers and students together. Mm -hmm. And my question to you is, in thinking about where we are today and the opportunities for intergenerational dialogue and action, what do you see as the sacred things at the center that bring us together across those generations? Mm -hmm. Maybe you could respond and then, then we'll come to a close, Parker. I th well, thank you, first of all, for the, your kind words about the book. And uh, throughout the Jewish educational community in synagogues and in Hillel at the Eye Center in Chicago, I've had some extraordinary experiences with this intergenerational uh, conversation. I, I, I think what has, what most generically, what, what needs to be at the center of that conversation is that it doesn't matter how old we are the search for meaning and purpose never ends you know i've i've got a 26 year old granddaughter who is who is uh, really struggling with her sense of vocation and she came over to talk the other night and i said well heather i've got good news and and bad news for you and it's both the same news at age 78 i'm still having the same struggle <laughs> what is why am i here what am i supposed to be doing and I, I hope that's reassuring for you, but I can understand how it might not be. But I, I think when we can talk, uh, put that at the center between the generations, we start getting somewhere. It's a way of saying we're both in in need of um, of light, and uh, it's not something that I have that I will uh, shed on your life. It's something that we can shed on each other's lives in equal measure. All right, thank you, Parker. I, uh, any final things, Parker, you want to say? Or if I, I just want to say I appreciate it's, uh, that you're still uh, in the world and, uh, and you have such a beautiful language and poetry in expressing things. I just, uh, it's just a joy to listen to you and read you and know you're still out there. So thank you for that. Anything you'd like to say finally, Parker or John? Yeah, I want to thank Parker. Uh, I think the well from which he drinks <laughs> is one that uh, his being commends to me. And it is uh, the way of being a friend, mm. uh, which I think is another way of talking about uh, the the Quaker way of understanding the world. And Parker, it... Uh, it comes from you uh, like water falling on us. I mean, it's just uh, so clear that there is a, a source, and I want to appreciate that source. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, th this really has been a conversation among friends, and I'm very grateful to have the opportunity uh, happy to be here in this world with both of you good people. And, and Maggie, you're folded into that, too. We haven't met, but I've really enjoyed working with you in, in preparing for this. So many thanks for the opportunity, and take good care. Okay. Maggie, you want to close? Sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed um, and so appreciative. Thank you. Thank you, Parker. Um, Peter and John, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you to our listeners and those who joined in the chat. Uh, I will trans get a transcript of that chat and provide it to Parker so he could see the community and, and John and um, Peter, who they can see what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, we will have this recording posted on the website, www.abundantcommunity.com. Um, and also, if you want to hear more about Parker's work, you can visit his website at www.courageRenewal.org. 
so thank you again for, for joining us today. And next time we'll be on Tuesday, June 6th. So look for us then. Uh, and until then, please visit our website and stay in touch with us. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, appreciate your time here today. And this brings our program to a close. And thanks for joining us. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.